Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 116, and today's guest is David Friedman, co-founder and CEO of Knox Financial. David is a serial entrepreneur, and as you'll hear from this episode, his latest company definitely struck a chord with me. You see, my wife and I previously owned an awesome condo in South Boston about 13 years ago. Needless to say, if we were able to hold on to that property and rent it out with all the hassle of being a landlord, it would have been such an amazing investment opportunity. Knox makes this situation a reality, and we get into lots of details on how the company operates. Now, David, back when he was at Tufts, he always knew that he wanted to start a company. His first company was Boston Logic, an integrated marketing platform for the real estate industry, and the company was acquired by a private equity firm. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like David's background and how he initially got a taste of startups, the story of Boston Logic, including the evolution of their product and how they mostly bootstrapped the company and scaled it to an acquisition, a deep dive into the process of hiring and working with an investment banking firm, all the details on Knox Financial and how they are helping people turn their homes into investment properties, advice for entrepreneurs trying to build an advisory board, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every day? It's a great way to keep informed of the over 4,000 jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs specifically sent to you from the category that you care about. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so happy to be here. <laughs> so Dave, you're a serial entrepreneur and uh, you know, your, your next company, your current company is Knox Financial, which uh, when I first heard of the idea, it really sunk into my brain of thinking about the past and wishing that Knox was available when uh, my wife and, uh, and I own this amazing uh, townhouse in South Boston that we, we sold and we bought our current house. But if Knox was around, I guarantee you, we could have held on to that. But before I start crying about that uh, and hearing all the great things you're doing with Knox, uh, let's talk about your background. So uh, you know, let's just go way back. Like, where, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Sure. I grew up uh, in suburban New York. I grew up just outside of Queens. What was I like as a kid? I was the kind of kid who climbed on things and spent a lot of time in the park, like jumping off of jungle gyms and playing pickup baseball. Um, I lived in this little community and there was a lot of kids my age in like a 15 minute walk or like a five minute bike ride. And that was really ideal. So that was, my upbringing was really great. Um, I also lived, uh, you know, seven blocks from my grandparents and I had a brother and my folks, I had like really close family around that was that was super duper. So that, that was my life as a kid. And then I, I moved to Boston to go to college and uh, stayed for Become a jumbo. You're a jumbo. No, no. I said you became a jumbo. Not yeah, me. Yeah. I wish, I wish I went to the Tufts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and studied mechanical engineering there and, and figured out that I could finish uh, a master's also in a fifth year because I, I had the credit. So I could stick around for just one extra year and leave with a master's. So I did that. So I got to enjoy college for an extra year. I was that guy who just didn't leave, uh, which was amazing. <laughs> I really loved college. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, I, uh, you know, not long after that, I, left, I launched Boston Logic. So I, I finished my master's in 03 and launched Boston Logic in 04. Okay. So, so how did that happen? So you, you have a mechanical engineering degree, you finished your master's after you know, five years. What, so we're, why were you like, okay, I'm going to start a company and it's going to be a software company. Yeah. It's a funny story there. My junior year, a common trend at Tufts is 
come your junior year or your senior year, both, you actually move off campus. You don't live in a dorm anymore. You move into a house that you rent with some other undergrads. And I did that. And uh, the summer before my junior year, I had this job. I was a mechanical engineering major. And I was working as an electromechanical engineer in a company that made test equipment for the semiconductor industry. I mean, like, you know, bread and butter for what I was studying. And I sort of came to this realization that I love the work, I love the people, but it just didn't feel like it was going to take me where I wanted to go in life. And uh, my roommate, Matt Weiss, was working for a startup. This is in the late 90s. Um, might have even been 2000. I guess it was 2000. So dot-com boom is happening. He's like on the side working for a startup. And... He says, hey, man, why don't you come and help us out running this event? We can use an extra set of hands. We'll give you free drink tickets. And that was enough for me. So <laughs> I showed up and I end up, you know, I have this open mind. I'm looking for like something else. And I end up running into this guy named David Morris. And he had a startup in Boston. And he said, hey, we're looking for people who um, can be campus representatives. You know, what, what do you think about interviewing for this, what, this role and being our, our Tufts on campus person? So... Long story short, that happened, and I got my first taste of the startup life, and that was it. I was kind of hooked. What, so what company was that? It was called the Ceiling Group, and it's not around anymore, um, but it's very dot-com-y, great place. I have some really great friends, Peter and Mindy, uh, from those days that I still see on you know whenever I can. They don't live anywhere near me, but they're great people. And it was my intro to startup life, and I, I got hooked. I caught the bug, as they say. So... By the time I was a senior, I said, yeah, I'm going to stick around and do a master's, but you know, I'm going to start a company when I, when I, when I leave Tufts. And uh, people say, well, what's it going to be? I said, I don't know yet. I just know that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to start and run a startup. And uh, when the opportunity came along, uh, you know, that's what Matt and I did. And Matt was my roommate at the time when, when he was working at a startup, and I was working at Seedling. So we were, we were bouncing ideas off of each other and just talking about startup life as you know, very young 20-somethings. So do you have any recollection of some of the uh, ideas that you did not pursue? Oh, yeah, actually. So the, fu the funny story about Boston Logic was we had this idea for a communications technology. And um, I, I don't want this to sound like I'm, I'm trying to puff us up, but it was basically like Slack. But it was 2004. And there was all sorts of things that the internet hadn't quite developed yet, but we had basically like an online chat and you could invite people to these, these chats you were doing. And we had presence so you could see who was online, which was actually not even in like even AOL and semester at the time. So you could see who was live um, and you could have a conversation, add people to it. You could add files to it. We actually built out a version one of this and it was like super early um, from a, from a web perspective. Right. Um, so uh, we had this idea we were, we were going to go out and raise some money around it. And it was 2004 and like people were still recovering from that recession. Right. Uh, so two young guys with, with an idea and like a little demo, were not getting funded. And that's actually out of that is what grew Boston logic. So that was the idea we loved and, and sort of tried to make happen. Uh, but it was too early for the world. The, you know, Slack was something that came along, you know, over a decade later and it, it's great. Uh, but, for, but for that product, because that's interesting, were you, were you able to use it? Like, so I remember with AOL Messenger, you're like, you had to be part of their ecosystem. You had to sign up for our Messenger account. Right. You know, were you able to like, you know, did you have to be a member of that community that you were developing the software for? Or could it no, be? You could, you could sign up for an account. Yeah. And there were uh, these, these conversations and they were threaded. And mm -hmm. um uh, you could add people to conversations and suddenly they'd get the entire history of the conversation and access to, access to it. 
but the, the thread could also be files and you could limit access to things in the thread as well. So you could have sub threads that were access limited. Uh, and then you could have groups within that again, you know, kind of like Slack, certainly not nearly the scale or functionality mm-hmm. of Slack, but meeting the same sort of need of like intra or inter office communication on one platform. Um, at the time, the biggest challenges in communications were spam. Uh, spam was a huge problem. Uh, the internet was getting overloaded by attachments and it was affecting bandwidth because fan bandwidth was like an issue, like, like an image attachment was an issue on bandwidth back then. So it was a very different time when it came to web communication, but that was the idea that we, um, we actually start out with. And because we couldn't find funding, we, uh, we took on a contract and that contract was with a large real estate entity. And that's what ended up evolving into Boston logic. Which is a great story. And it's like very reminiscent of um, another great Tufts entrepreneur, Art Pappas from uh, Bullhorn, yep. where, you know, he, it's not like he set out to build a CRM for the staffing industry. It was, uh, I think that was a customer of his that needed that. And it just ended up evolving into a product. So take me from that early days of just kind of like somebody hiring you to develop something to actually saying, wait, this is something that others might need and productizing it. Sure. So that first customer actually hired us to build an online marketing campaign and a website. So it was a service contract and two guys who were raising money and had no money signed a, you know, a a mid five figure contract. And that felt like a big check to us. (laughs) We we had no income. We didn't really have a lot of expenses either, but it felt big. And we said, Hey, maybe there's some business around this. What we found at the time is that the real estate brokerage vertical was rather behind the technology curve. It still is, by the way, uh, but it's, it's come an awfully long way. Uh, so we, we set out to find more customers, realized there was a lot of people who needed what we were doing, and that went pretty well. This is before there was such a thing as web-based software. So around the time we're launching this, Gmail came out, for example. So that was one of the first applications people used in a web browser. Mm-hmm. Before that, everything was just like a website where you'd like read information, you know, AOL was its own application you installed on your computer. So we're like uh, real estate firms using like act, remember act as a database. Like yeah, a for sure. I mean, sometimes you still do that. Uh, um, <laughs> a lot of real estate firms had no database at that time. They had no uh, software to get into an MLS. They'd have like against a client you'd install on your computer to enter listing. Some places didn't even have a digitally accessible or remotely accessible MLS at the time. Anyway, there was all sorts of things that we started to digitize about that uh, within the industry. And then also over the next few years, SaaS software became, you know, a thing. The idea of a licensing software that was only accessible through a web browser became a lot more commonplace. And so a few years into it, we started building some products that we then, um, license, you know, so it started sort of a SaaS business, uh, as part of Boston logic where we made software for realtors. So we made a bunch of little products and then we decided to aggregate them into one product. And then we said, you know, we have to make this multi-tenant. So we have to make it so we don't have to redeploy it every time a customer wants it. It's one platform, multiple customers whose data are separated from one another. And that original launch was a, uh, a basic CRM, a property search product and a website with a basic content management system. And once we did that, uh, we, we got to hundred customers, you know, within a year, like hundred SaaS subscriptions. Again, no funding. This is all just based on revenue. It was all revenue funded. So it wasn't necessarily one customer like Bullhorn. It was, we, we saw these needs. We said, all right, well, this is something 
that the world will buy. We, we built one of the first ever property search applications that use Google Maps. Like this came out before Trulia. That was Trulia's big thing. Uh, so we were putting that on realtor websites via iframes. Uh, I don't know, in 07 or something like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had this platform. So then we could say, okay, well, we have some unique economics. We've got 100 customers. This is what it's costing us to acquire a customer. This is how long they're sticking around. Average revenue per customer. This is something we can scale. And that's sort of the, the genesis of the larger Boston logic uh, businesses. That's how we became a, you know, a scaled SaaS company. And, and who was involved then? Was it just the founders building this? So was, you know, did you start out employees or? Yeah, we had, we had employees cause we had, we had contracts. So we had a few people basically build out by the hour or build out by the project. And that left us with a little bit of time on our hands to do uh, some development. And so it took us a while. We actually used uh, the, the great recession to do this. What happened was we sort of came to the realization one day in about 2008, uh, look, we can bang our heads against the wall as hard as we want, but we're probably not going to grow the business this year or next year, right? Mm -hmm. We just need to weather this storm. And we've been around long enough to know how to run a business and keep the doors open. And we sort of hoarded cash a little bit. We, we cut down our staff a little bit. We weren't that big, but we still, uh, we made some people part-time. We let one guy go, you know, things like that. And then by 09, we had launched this multi-tenant SaaS platform. And the timing was pretty good because, you know, it, it took a few years for the, the economy to really wake up. But uh, the real estate vertical was sort of ready to invest again. And um, we, we, were, we were there with the product. Right. And that, that 2008, 2009 timeframe, although it was so ridiculously bad, like I just, so I was running a search firm at the time and there was no searches. Everyone was laying people off. And that was actually what, uh, you know, I used that time to start venture fizz and then it ended up, you know, being something much greater, but, um, but you know, you think about the companies that are going public right now, a lot of them were started in that era, you know, like Dropbox and so many other great companies. So there was a, there's this uh, great book by, um, Tom Friedman that he, he put out last, I think it was last year he put it out. And uh, uh, he has this chapter called what the hell happened in 2010. Um, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was 2010 or maybe it was 2008 out of 2007. I can't even remember what the year, but it was in the same year, like Facebook went uh, off just college campuses, YouTube launched or was bought by Google. Like all this stuff happened just before the great recession. And then, Oh, that's it. it was, so it must've been 07. And then, uh, the great recession happened and they were all there in like a more mature state ready to go. Like I think AWS launched around them, all these things just sort of all were happening. The recession happened and they were all sort of developing, getting better sort of slowly. And then a lot of things just sort of took off and, you know, hockey sticked shortly thereafter. Yeah. A lot, a lot of stuff came out of that period. So once, you know, you started to see traction again with the economy improving. So how did you go about scaling the business from there? Like, was it like, okay, we got to add a bunch of salespeople and, you know, build out a, a stronger engineering team. Like what, what did you do next? We, we really responded to customers that like over and over and over again, we were building based on what customers needed. Sometimes customers would pay us to build features. So we had a lot of customer funded development still going on, but they knew, it would become part of the product. And we talked to our customers an incredible amount. Part of being in the real estate software vertical is going to conferences and straight into customer offices. So we had met personally with most of our customers 
often on-site or again at a conference. And so we were constantly listening to them. We had way more feature requests than we ever had time to build, <laughs> which is a very common thing in, in SaaS software. And uh, uh, we would hire around, uh, well, we'd hire who we could. We were never really shooting for profitability in a big way, but we also never had a lot of cash. We didn't raise a big venture round or anything like that. We raised a few small private rounds and that allowed us to grow uh, without worrying too much about profitability. Of course, we couldn't burn a lot of capital either, but it, it allowed us to grow relatively aggressively. And um, uh, we, you know, we would build as, as fast as we could. We, you know, we'd take input from customers. We'd say, okay, what do the most of them want? What do we think is going to have the greatest positive impact on the customers and the users and the, and the customers' customers? And, and that would sort of dictate our path forward. So why did you decide to take kind of that bootstrapped approach. You took a little bit of outside capital, but uh, I'm sure there could have been opportunities if you go in to raise an A round or, you know, doing more of the venture route. We didn't think looking at the real estate brokerage software world. So this is like, you know, a niche within a niche, right? Uh, we would, we considered it several times and we looked at the market. We looked at how big we thought we could get uh, and how long that would take. And we didn't think we could give a venture scale return. Uh, and it, this is kind of borne out with other companies. Some companies have, have gotten even to like say an A round, as long as they stop there, that they, in a very few cases, maybe like count them on one hand, they've had good exits that returned good capital for their investors. But most folks who've gone to a B round, forget it. It's like the, let alone a C it's the death knell. There's just not enough market size there. And that, that sort of, for us, in a large way, dictated uh, what we thought was the best exit plan for the company. We said, all right, if we want to build a really big company here, we're not going to do it just by selling one product to everyone in the industry. We're going to need multiple products. We're going to need multiple revenue streams. And that you can either build all those extra products or you can acquire them. And the only way to, for us to acquire them would be to partner with a private equity firm. And that, that was our exit strategy, which we, which we executed. Right. So that happens fairly recently, right? Like over the past, was it a year or two years? Uh, it happened in late 2016. 2016. Okay. So, so a few happened, years so ago. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then the acquisitions did start to happen. So like, how'd you go about looking at the marketplace and deciding which companies might be the right acquisition targets? And then, you know, the, like, I think as founders, you always wonder like, you know, <laughs> is the phone automatic? Well, not phone, I guess. An email, you get an email where it's like, Hey, I'm interested in talking to you. Like, how, did, how does that process start with, with other companies? Sure. Uh, so with uh, Boston Logic, a few things happen. First of all, you start getting a lot of phone calls. And they're always calling you. And there's two parties that call you. There's the private equity firms and there are the, uh, the investment banks. Mm -hmm. So when you get to a certain scale and enough people notice you, you start getting both of those phone calls. And what I did, and it worked out really well, so I recommend this to other people all the time, is I just started a document, like a, a Word document. I put all my notes in one document. Every time I took a call with one of these companies, I would write down the name of the company, who I was talking to, when I was talking to them. And they will always spiel to you about their fund or their firm. So we do deals in these sectors. We uh, work in, with companies of this scale, with these economics. Um, they're a PE firm. They say, this is how large our fund is. And, you know, when we raised it, things like that. So based on all of that, I start to understand what the market looked like. There's no analyst publishing 
uh, a report on what the market for a sub $50 million revenue uh, real estate software companies looks like. It just, you know, it doesn't exist. So you have to kind of create your own. So the bankers are representing buyers and the PE firms are buyers. So that's the buy side of the market. You're the sell side of the market. And you can start to get an, a, a vision of what that looks like. And so I, I over a, a year, about a year, began to realize two things. One, what that buy side looked like and what therefore we needed to look like as a company on a, on a financial statement in order to garner interest. The other thing that right around that time was happening was there was maturing going on in the market. So from 2013 to 2014, the number of seed fundings had gone 4x in real estate tech. And we'd already been around for you know, half a decade at that point. So we were way early in that game. So I said to my board, uh, you know, one board meeting, I said, look, if this is what's happening, this is the seed funding. So there's going to be follow-ons. There's going to be A's. Some of those companies are going to do great. Some of them are not. But this market will mature, and there's going to be private equity looking to you know, vacuum up all of these companies into roll-ups because that's what they love to do. Um, and in order to position ourselves to be that platform for acquisition, the data I'm gathering is pointing towards this type of a picture. And um, they said, all right, buddy, you know, let, let's, let's keep walking this path. Let's keep moving that direction. So once we had line of sight to what that picture needed to look like, we went out and we started interviewing investment banks. And so we did this, uh, we did a bank transaction and, you know, they went out to the market, they talked to, you know, strategics, they talked to financial buyers, you know, private equity firms. And in the end, we, we ended up with a really great partner. So they, and they ran the process for you. So you could still focus on running your business and they are the, the broker. Well, yes, I'm sure it's, I've never sold a business without an investment bank. So uh, I'm sure it's an awful lot more work without one. That said, uh, if you're a founder and you're watching this or listening to this and, and you think it's not a lot of work because you hired a banker, that, that would be wrong. Uh, it's still like a job on top of your job for you and for whoever runs your, your books, if that's your CFO or your controller or whomever, and probably a bookkeeper in your office as well, somebody who like reports that controller or CFO. Um, and then it's going to impact the time for a few other senior people, like whoever is your, your, your head of biz dev and your, your CTO. They're all going to get involved and spend some time on the deal. But um, yeah, you're going to spend 20 to 40 hours a week easily, if not a lot more on the sale of the company while you're still working 40 plus hours a week running your company. It's, but so, so that's the due diligence process you're referring like, that's kind of like with that extra 20 to 30 hours a week of them just yeah, getting it's day one. So you, when you engage in an investment bank, the, the first thing they do is start uh, asking you for documents and you're, you're compiling documents and sending it along. And then they're building a financial model and you're going through that and they're building um, a deck, you know, a book, which they're going to go out and send. You're, you're going through that with them and you're, you're contributing to that. And then, then they go to market and you're, um, you're having conversations with potential buyers, you know, and then, yeah, then there's diligence, there's negotiating a, an LOI and then there's the, the, the diligence and, and the deal and working with lawyers. I mean, it's every stage of it. If you're a founder CEO, I guess any CEO, you, you're involved. See, you're, you're busy. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's at the end of it, you are tired. It's months and months of a lot of work and you are a very tired individual. And like, I would imagine like finding the right investment banker must be a, a challenging process too. Like I shared office space once with an investment banker and I saw the, the amount of hustle that he had. Uh, he was really good. 
and uh, like, you know, he, he was cold calling, just saying, Hey, I'm representing a you know, software company that is doing X amount of revenue. You know, it was just like cold calling into the M and a people at SAP or wherever. Right. Uh, so, I mean, so that's obviously, that's, it reminds me of recruiting where you, you know, it's kind of like you become this central expert where you're trying to be a matchmaker. Absolutely. Um, so choosing an investment bank is something that it's not easy, but I, I've sort of boiled it down to three things I tell people when they're choosing one. And a lot of people really agree with this. So I'll just don't say it here. Um, there's three important things. First of all, the banker should know your industry. So you should not be the first business they're selling like yours or in the vertical that, that uh, you're in. And that means that when they're calling potential buyers, they're not new people to them. They're people they've talked to before. Uh, they might have a first name relationship with ideally, but they know the vertical. So that's number one. Number two is scale is so incredibly important. If you've got a business that's like sub a hundred million in, in, in revenue or, or maybe even small than that, like you're not going to hire Goldman, right? You're not going to hire uh, any of the top wall street brands. And that's okay. Because if you did, you'd get their C team and you don't want the, their C, you know, anybody's C team. You want everybody's A team. So if they don't do deals that have less than, I don't know, a quarter billion dollars in enterprise value, and you're selling your company for a hundred million, d- d- don't do the deal. Don't think, Hey, I just got a great team. you got the wrong team, unfortunately. Um, and then finally is ethics. Investment bankers will say some stuff. <laughs> uh, and I've been on the buy side, you know, once we, we did the deal, you know, with Providence, I, I was on the buy side. And so investment bankers would be pitching me. And so I've seen it on either end. And I mean, there are some investment bankers will say anything. They'll say anything to sellers to get signed up. They'll, they'll tell you your business is worth a lot more than it is just to get it out on the market. Um, so you really got to, you know, do some background checking. Hopefully you'll get a lot of interest to people who say, hey, I've worked with this individual. Um, I was impressed by their integrity. I was impressed by, uh, how they ran their process. And that that's sometimes hard to come by in the iBanking industry. So those, those are my three things. And uh, we had yeah. to give me the opportunity to say that. Yeah, that's, that's great feedback. I don't think we've ever really gone deep on the podcast on investment banking and, you know, the whole, you know, acquisition process and how to choose your banker. Like that's uh, that's, that's great. Great advice. Now let's bring the story to what you're doing now. So uh, Knox financial, I kind of gave a little teaser at the beginning of, I'm going to be talking to you about this company through the lens of me being a previous South Boston condo or townhouse uh, owner with a beautiful patio, a basement. It was like 1300 square feet. Uh, this is, you know, we sold it 13, 14 years ago. And I just, every time I, I go into Southie and see the, the the price of real estate, it drops a little tear in my eye. So anyways, uh, <laughs> so what's Knox financial? Knox makes it incredibly easy to hold on to a home that you're moving out of and turn it into an investment property. So you are the archetype of the customer we're going after, only we're going after them before they sell. (laughs) And I cannot tell you how many people I talk to just like you who sold a home they wish they still owned. I am one of those people. Part of the reason we built this company is because I went through a similar experience not quite as long ago, but I watched a home that I sold go up in value $200,000 over a four year period after my sale. And, and you know what I had done is I had thought about holding on to that condo. Uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to rent it out. Uh, I don't necessarily need to pull the cash out of it or I can refi the home. Um, I'll, I'll rent it out. I'll find a, a property manager to handle it from there and I'll figure the rest out. 
And sure enough, you know, I had a day job. I was running Boston Logic at the time and I said, screw it. And I sold it and I regret it. It would have been a great investment to, to hold on to. So I started telling that story in sort of a self-deprecating manner to all sorts of people and everybody had the same story. I had one of the guys like you, everyone saw it. Somebody said, yeah, I didn't sell that home. I still own it. It's 20 years later and I'm a millionaire because of it. And I, you know, I started chatting with this about this with a bunch of people and most specifically my co-founder here, Spencer Taylor. And we said, yeah, this is, this is big. I mean, imagine what would happen if you could help lots and lots of homeowners, millions of homeowners not sell, you'd actually change how people build wealth you change the economy. And that's the kind of scale of opportunity that I was excited to go after. And uh, so that's, that's why we we're building Knox. We're building Knox to make it easier to build wealth in a, in a dramatically faster and safer way by not selling a home that you already own. So how does it work? Cause it's, you know, so if, um, you know, if I was generating income for the townhouse in Southie, maybe I could have, you know, figure out a way to buy the home without taking, you know, the proceeds from that sale. Uh, and the other thing that the irony of this statement is hysterical. Cause my, my, my dad was, uh, he owned apartments. So he was a landlord yet. That's the furthest thing that, that I ever wanted to do was like be the person to rent out the townhouse and make sure they're good tenants and they move, got to find someone else, collect the rent, whatever. Like, so all these things of owning that second home sounds lovely to, for, for rental, but I'm not the person that's going to go fix your leaky right. sink either. Right. So, yeah. so how, how does Knox work and you know deal with some of those things? Yeah, so our goal is to turn the ownership experience for, for uh, income property into experience like owning a share of Amazon or Microsoft or Apple. So you put the home in our program, we handle everything. You get a check and a statement every quarter. You get a 1099 in January and that's it. Uh, so that's, that's the result of it. That's, that's kind of quote how it works. But uh, for in your case, you know, you'd put the home in the program. If you needed to pull some cash out, we have a, a financing arm. So we do a refi or a second mortgage or something like that that gets you the cash you'd need. Uh, interestingly, a really small percentage of our customers are even interested in our financing arm because most of them um, either don't have a lot of equity built up yet, but they still believe in the home or they don't have any debt. They don't want any debt. They're retiring. Uh, or they're already landlords. The home is, we get a lot of homes coming in the program that are already rented out and it might be like your dad or they, and they say, you know what? I just don't want to deal with it anymore here. If you guys can just deal with everything, that would be a dream come true. And we go, that's exactly what we do. Um, so you put the home in the program, we do the financing. If you need it, we find the right insurance policy because your insurance policy when you're living in the home doesn't work when you're renting it out. Uh, and then we, we take a very, uh, kind of, dot every I, cross every T approach to rentals. So we send in professional real estate photographers. We market on every website you can possibly imagine. We do all the showings. Uh, we take all the rental applications. I mean, you, do, you don't do anything. We, um, we do the background checking, credit checking. We have all the legal done. So you don't have to contact a lawyer and drop a lease. We've got that taken care of. You just get a, a DocuSign one day that says, here's the tenant. If you want more background information, we'll send you all the background information we have on them and you can review it yourself. You sign it, you move out, the tenant moves in. When there's a problem, they call us. We collect the rent on your behalf into a bank account that we manage for you. So we have a reserve account that's your money. We pay all the bills out of that account. Mortgage, taxes, insurance, condo fees, any maintenance costs come out of there as well. Maintenance we outsource to a third party that we have negotiated or multiple third parties that we've negotiated very good rates with and we don't mark that up 
Also, any materials, don't mark them up. Uh, so at the end of the quarter, we send you the net profit on the unit. And like I said, at the end of the year, you get a, you get a 1099. So filing your taxes is simplified. And uh, the goal is that you'll like it so much that you buy more investment property uh, with whoever realtor you work with and you put those in our program. And we make building wealth through real estate, uh, you know, a passive uh, investment. How do I qualify? You know, like I assume you have a qualification process of homes that you'll take on. And then what's your revenue model? Sure. Qualification uh, is sort of done in two ways. First of all, we've built software that allows us to punch in a bunch of details about your home and pulls a bunch of public record information and some information you've given us. And we say, all right, here are the economics of the home, uh, which include our fees, uh, which basically for, for most homes, and this isn't true for 100%, but for most homes, it comes out about 10% of the revenue we collect is, is the cost to you. So rather than paying, you know, property manager five to eight percent and a realtor one month's rent every time it turns over, we only make money when you make money, which is a dime for every time you make a dollar, and that's it. Uh, so it really de-risks the situation for the for the owner, um, and uh, th- that that's one of the ways we make money. The other ways we make money is we're a mortgage brokerage and we're an insurance brokerage. So uh, to qualify for a mortgage brokerage excuse me, for a mortgage, uh, we don't have any special sauce there. You have to qualify with Fannie and Freddie or with the bank. So we have a network of banks. Uh, the other thing we do to qualify a home is not just do an analysis of um, uh, the financials of the home, but also we walk through every property. So yesterday I visited two homes uh, and we, we look at them. We make sure they're not falling apart, that tenants are going to like them. Uh, we don't take Honestly, we've taken every property that's wanted to come to the program because nobody reaches out to us and says, hey, can you take my money pit into your program? It hasn't happened yet anyway. Um, so we look at the homes and uh, we've, we've been blessed to have some wonderful homes come in the program. We only launched 90 days ago. So uh, we've already got quite a few homes coming in. All right. So it's just, it ends up being about 10% of the total earnings from rental income over... I mean, that's the primary... What the, the end... Uh, owner homeowner sees no that's what that's our fee right so that's your, that's your fee that's exactly our, the homeowner sees the net profit on the right well so this I'm just, yeah so they're getting the full so if they hold on to that property like i going back to me 13 14 years later uh, i can sell and there's no like i don't have to cut you a check for the appreciation value that i generated no no we don't I'm take just, any interest in the value of the home we don't um no it's it's, it's pretty simple we take the work that you would have been doing as an operator, the work your dad does or, or was doing as an right. operator. And we've, we've automated an awful lot of it. We've built uh, a lot of data systems around it so we can make sure we're bringing homes to the program that again, financially we think are going to be good investments for you. So there's another layer of sort of security there for the clients. And um, we, we make it so that we can, or we've made it so that we can scale up into very large scale while not taking on, uh, a lot of extra costs on our end. And that's how we can offer, uh, you know, a market undercutting price for what we do. Yeah. I mean, as a homeowner, I mean, it sounds amazing because the headaches of the, you know, tenants and phone calls, collecting rent, like these things that you're doing for, you know, 10% is phenomenal. The, um, the other piece, um, like you talked about scale, right? So you know, you're 90 days into this. So you probably don't have exactly everything thought out or you haven't witnessed everything yet to know exactly the playbook. But, um, you know, I assume this is, you're going to bring this national as soon as you possibly can. Right. 
Uh, as soon as we possibly can. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that alone. We are, we think this can be a global business. Right. We're right now focused on the greater Boston area. Uh, we actually have targeted 53 zip codes as much as we can. We keep our marketing geographically focused. So um, we're, we're growing here. And once we are satisfied with our numbers here, we will take it into other metropolitan areas. And we do plan on expanding market by market. And you see a lot of geographically focused businesses that, that sell a physical product or sell a product on premises doing the same, like your, whether you're Uber or um, Lime, the bike company where they actually, you know, something has to happen in a geographic location for them to make money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they expand market by market and we're going to follow a similar model. And we think probably towards the end of the year, we're going to market number two. So, you know, you, uh, come out of college, you start a business, uh, you know, you're starting, you know, so you're a serial entrepreneur, like who, who do you count on for like business advice, um, you know, mentorship? I was incredibly lucky to bring together a wonderful board of advisors at Boston logic. And a bunch of those folks are still with me now. In fact, almost all any, any one of them pick up the phone when I call them uh, all, but one of those folks is an investor in Knox now. So they all, they all stuck around. And then there's a bunch of other people who are also investors uh, or most of them anyway, who I, I call on. So um, some of these are names that some people know, like Bob Glorioso is like a, a technology maven and he's mostly retired now, but Bob's one of my mentors. Brad Yunt is an amazing mentor. Matt Weiss, who I founded Boston logic with, uh, I passed, you know, passed a deck by him earlier this week just for his take because he's brilliant. <laughs> um, I leverage my community all the time. I, I sat down with Sebian Ducatch this morning for a coffee to, to chat over some funding questions. He runs a VC firm. Um, you know, he ran uh, Techstars Boston. Yeah, so Sebian's a great guy. Uh, I'm an investor in his fund. I think he really knows what he's doing. And so, yeah, I call, you know, whenever I have a question, I don't know the answer pretty quickly or Spencer doesn't <laughs> know the answer pretty quickly that, you know, we sort of go, who do we know that has this, um, uh, you know, has this down, you know, who's done this before. I've got CFOs that I have worked with that I call when I have financing issues or finance issues. I'm not an accountant. <laughs> and if, or if my VP of finance and I can't figure it out real quick, we, we call these days we call Tim, uh, who was the CFO at Boston logic for a while. So, it's all about the, you know, a wide network of people I say, but guys like Brad and Bob and Bruce and Chris and Matt, who are on our, our advisory board at Boston logic. Those were my, my closest uh, folks. So at Boston logic, you had never built an advisory board before. So what advice would you give to uh, other entrepreneurs that maybe are you know, more bootstrapped about what, what was like the, uh, I don't know if there's an exact number of people, but what was like the mix? Was it people that are in the industry, people that are not, you know, just like, how, how do you decide what was the right mix of people to, to add value? Um, I don't know that I have a good barometer on, on how many, you know, how to, how to do the mix. I, I, I came to a point where it was obvious a board of advisors was something that would be super helpful. And I thought to myself, who are the people I know that if I had their undivided attention for four hours a quarter, my business would have the greatest benefit from. Mm-hmm. And I, I give this advice to other people. I said, figure out who those people are, pick three, four names, uh, take them each to lunch. And, you know, after a few minutes of catching up about your kids or whatever, say, Hey, I'm building an advisory board. I think you could have a major impact and, and help us grow to be an amazing company. And I'd like you to join it. And they should without hesitation say yes. And that's how, you know, if they hesitate, you know, find a way to not, 
<laughs> just retract, but um, they should without hesitation say yes and be excited to be part of it. Um, and, and that's it. It's just all about who you think of all the people you've met can have an amazing impact on your business. And I, I don't know if I worry too much about the mix. Um, I did, I did have too many, <laughs> I came to the realization I had too many people who like to talk a lot on our board of advisors, which is not a shocker. So I, I, you know, privately talked to all of them after a little while and said, Hey, let's, let's share the, uh, the air in the room. And, um, that worked out well. Sometimes I had to remind them every year or so, but, uh, a lot of people with a lot of advice and a lot of, uh, energy and desire to help is not a bad thing. Sometimes you just have to remind them to, uh, you know, the, that they're, they're affecting the chemistry in the room and there's ways they can make it, uh, more awesome. And what advice would you give to all the entrepreneurs that are, you know, bootstrapping on how to run their business, you know, in a capital efficient manner, like, you know, like still growing, but it's not trying to get ahead of their skis where all of a sudden they're in trouble because they don't have a pile of VC money in their bank account. Yeah. First is don't run out of cash. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like a lot of, a lot of people think there's, you know, Hey, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. And that's a, that's a tough one. Cause maybe you won't. Right. Um, the other one is if you think that there's an expert for everything and you're always going out looking for some resource, you're going to pay with cash or equity to do everything. Um, you got to remember you're an entrepreneur and you've got a good head on your shoulders and you just got to sometimes sit down and figure out whatever it is. You know, if you think you need to do more digital advertising through Google, give yourself half a day, you'll figure out the Google AdWords interface. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think you, um, can't figure out some piece of software that you think is critical for your business. Like there's an online trading video. I guarantee you, you know, God bless YouTube. <laughs> God, Anything oh, you need to learn is on YouTube. <laughs> I figured out how to fix my, my heating system in a, in, in a house I own, like my boiler, you know, my like, propane gas heater right. for the entire house. Right. By like watching YouTube videos, like well, someone took the time, it blows my mind. Someone took the time to take the exact model of the heater you have in your home and totally yeah. break it apart and show you what's wrong. It's fascinating. Yeah. I have a 50 year old Land Rover in, in my garage that doesn't have any brakes right now. And I'm just going to go on YouTube to figure out how to like, you know, bleed the brakes and, you know, put brake fluid. In. Like I, I've never done it. And yeah. I will absolutely take my life in my own hands when I drive it the first time, but I'm going to figure out how to fix the brakes on my own. And I'm sure there's three dozen really good videos on YouTube about how to do that in a 50 year old Land Rover. So you can do almost anything with YouTube. It's amazing. Now, so outside of uh, work, what do you like to do? I'm a, well, I'm a dad. Um, so what I like to do, I, I, I like to find as much time to spend with my, my son. I have another one on the way. So, uh, wow. very soon I'm going to have two boys. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, my number one hobby for the past 30 odd years has been skiing. So in the, in the winter, I'm a, I'm a huge skier and I'm a guy who spends a lot of time outdoors. So I'm a skier. I'm a hiker. These days I have my son, George on my back in a backpack. We're hiking. Um, I like to bike, and, you know, jumping off a cliff into a river never, never, um, makes for a bad afternoon if you ask me. So, uh, being outside is a big thing. And, um, I cook dinner for myself and my wife every night and spending, you know, that time, uh, in the kitchen and, and just chatting with my wife and sitting over dinner. Uh, I do it every day and, and I, and I, I make a priority for it. So that's a, that's a, when I, if I think about it, I sleep for a number of hours a day, I'm in the office a lot of hours a day, and then I get a few hours with my family and there's, you know, there's time with my son and there's time with, uh, um, my wife. And that's, that's, that's a lot of it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the, uh, soon to be addition to the family. That's exciting. 
Yeah, very exciting. Uh, and Knox, so you're, uh, what's the plan as far as growing the team? Are you hiring, like for what positions? Uh, well, right now we're hiring a summer marketing intern. <laughs> that's, our, that's our only open uh, role at this very moment. Um, okay. As the team grows, we're going to be adding to the marketing team. Um, and we'll probably add somebody who runs product in the next few months in, in a pretty big way. And then growing out biz dev, you know, marketing and biz dev are, are really our, our big focus. Most of the other stuff we're doing, we've got uh, outside firms to handle. So like a big part of our business is built on Salesforce. Another big part of our business is built on NetSuite. And we've integrated those two using Boomi, which is a Dell product. Uh, so we've got third parties that can kind of do the administration of those pieces. And then all of our, our, our data models and stuff have been baked into a lot of that. Um, so having Knox is building Knox from a technology perspective has been an, an exercise in technology integration as much as it has been in development. We've built some proprietary tools, but a lot of that is just built to work with, uh, really big, uh, systems like NetSuite and Salesforce and HubSpot and, and the list goes on. So to, to cap off hiring, um, yeah, building the product team, building, a, you know, building out the marketing team, and then it'll be market by market expansion. So when we go into a market, we need some people there and then we need to bolster our, our team at HQ. And, and that's kind of the operating model is, is a, a strong team at HQ that supports a relatively small team in each market so that uh, we can be efficient as we, as we expand. All right, Dave. Well, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your background, uh, all the great things you did with Boston Logic and what you're currently up to at Knox. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, when the time comes um, that I won't sell my, my next home. So that's what I'm rooting for. We'd love to have you as a customer. Thank you for having me on. This has been great. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.